Good morning again, Redeemer. Uh, if you have your Bibles, I'd invite you to turn them to Acts, Acts chapter 5. We'll be uh, looking, uh, we'll be picking up where we left off last week, so we'll be picking up right there in uh, Acts 5, verse 17. And as you make your way there, um, just a little bit about uh, the passage that we're reading. There's a lot of irony in the passage, and if you know anything about Greco-Roman literature, um, irony is uh, a powerful tool that's used to um, draw the reader in. And so I want to just talk briefly about irony here. There, there is what we would call situational irony, and that is when an action is contrary to the desired or uh, expected effect. One example of situational irony would be Palm Sunday. On Sunday, the Jews expected that the Lord Jesus would come into Jerusalem and deliver them from Roman oppression. And ironically, there's a turn. Jesus does not enter on a war horse to overthrow the government. He enters to fight a, an even greater battle to win us from sin and death and darkness to make us right before the Lord. There's also cosmic irony where the Greeks and the Romans believed that the gods would interfere in human affairs to bend the outcomes to their choosing. There's also what we would call dramatic irony. It's a disparity that is between an actor and the observer. The audience understands something that a character in the story does not. One example of this might be uh, one of my favorite episodes from The Fresh Prince of Bel-Air. It's the episode where Will Smith's father enters into his life after being absent for 14 years. And Uncle Phil and Aunt Viv are skeptical because they know his track record. But Will is optimistic and he's gullible. He's, he, he's, he so wants to be with his father that, that he doesn't see the disappointment and the letdown coming. And if you're watching the show and if you're Aunt Viv and Uncle Phil, then you kind of know what's happening, but, but at the end of the show, Will is floored. Like his insides are, 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 are literally, uh, they're crumbling because of disappointment. We saw it coming, but, but he didn't. That's dramatic irony. There's also verbal irony, when a character says something but means another, or it could also mean when a character says something but should be meaning something else. I mention all of this because Luke is writing to a wealthy man by the name of Theophilus. And I think what Luke is doing is saying that this account of Jesus will hold its weight against any other literature written at that time. In our passage, you'll see situational irony. The religious leaders intend on stopping the name of Jesus from being preached but if you look at the end of our passage, it says every day in the temple from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching the Christ. You see cosmic irony in our passage. The religious leaders put the disciples in prison and the Lord sends an angel to open the prison doors and to walk them out. You see dramatic irony. The religious leaders assume that because they locked the apostles up, that when they go summon them the next day, that the apostles are there. But we, the reader, we know what happened. We know that the angel unlocked them the night before. And so there's this surprise in the middle of the chapter that we're reading. 
There's verbal irony. That one of the religious leaders says, you want this blood of Jesus upon us. And he actually should want the blood of Jesus upon him because unless the blood of Jesus washes you from your sin, you will perish in darkness. You see what Luke is doing? He's using irony as a tool to draw us in. Let's start at verse 17. But the high priest rose up and all who were with him, that is the party of the Sadducees, and filled with jealousy, they arrested the apostles and put them in public prison. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out. And he said, go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. And when they heard this, they entered the temple at daybreak and began to teach. Now, when the high priest came and those who were with him, they called together the council, all the senate of the people of Israel, and sent to the prison to have them brought. But when the officers came, they did not find them in the prison. So they returned and reported, we found the prison securely locked and the guards standing at the doors. But when we opened them, we found no one inside. Now, when the captain of the temple and the chief priest heard these words, they were greatly perplexed about them, wondering what this would come to. And someone came and told them, look, the men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. Then the captain with the officers went and brought them, but not by force, for they were afraid of being stoned by the people. And when they had brought them, they sent them before the council, and the high priest questioned them, saying, we strictly charge you not to teach in this name, yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, we must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are as witnesses to these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. When they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. But a Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law held in honor by all the people, stood up and gave orders to put the men outside for a little while. And he said to them, men of Israel, take care what you are about to do with these men. For before these days... Thutis rose up claiming to be somebody and a number of men, about 400, joined him and he was killed and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. And after him, Judas the Galilean rose up in the days of the census and drew away some of the people after him, but he too perished and all who followed him were scattered. So in this present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or this undertaking is of man, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. So they took his advice. And when they had called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus. And they let them go. And they left the presence of his council, of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple, from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ 
is Jesus. Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, um, we need you this hour. We need your spirit to be powerfully at work in us. Holy Spirit, we need you to open our eyes. I need you, Holy Spirit, to speak through my mouth. And Father, I pray that we would not be hearers of your word alone, but those who seek to do and obey you. Would you go before us and bless us in this hour, I pray for Jesus' sake. Amen. There's a question I want to put before you. Who's imprisoned in this text? Who is imprisoned in this passage? On the surface, we might say the apostles. And if you say that, then you are partially right. You see, the Bible often speaks of another imprisonment that is more difficult to see and more difficult to diagnose. It's spiritual bondage. And our call to worship this morning that Pastor Zach read, he read from Isaiah, and Isaiah talks about the servant of the Lord who will come and he will give sight to the blind and he will go into the prison and he will walk prisoners and captives out of their dungeons. Now, what is Isaiah talking about? Is he only talking about physically blind or the physically imprisoned? The answer is no. He's talking about a spiritual bondage, a spiritual blindness, and a mark of those who have been spiritually set free, according to Isaiah, is that they will sing songs and praises and honor the name of the one who released them. I ask you a question again. Who is imprisoned in our passage? It's the religious leaders. They don't like the name of Jesus. They don't want his name to be famous. They are in a more dangerous prison than the ones the disciples are in. Ask you another question. What's the greatest freedom in this passage? Is it the fact that the disciples get to walk out of a jail cell? Or is there an even better freedom that's right in front of us? A freedom that they have, a freedom that they steward, a freedom that turns them into fearless servants of the one who divinely frees. Last week, we looked at generosity. The week before that, boldness. This morning, I think what Luke would want us to consider is dangerous bondage that's met with divine mercy. And if you are still in the dangerous bondage in this passage, you need to know that God's mercy is reaching out to you today. And there's also something else in the passage. It's 
What's the response? If you've been divinely freed by God from the bondage of sin, how do we respond? This passage would say that we're to be fearless servants. Fearless servants. Let's look at dangerous bondage and divine mercy. Now, there's an illusion of freedom in our passage. Here's what I want to do. I want to lump a lot of people into one bucket. I want to put the Sadducees in this bucket, the high priests in this bucket, the officials who are doing the arresting in this bucket, the Sanhedrin, the council in this bucket. And, and, and these group, this group of people, they exercise a lot of freedom in our passage. They're the ones who can rise up and go as they please. They're the ones who can have people arrested. They're the ones who can call council meetings. They're the ones who can summon people to give an account for their actions. They're the ones who can even charge people to stop talking that this is a picture of freedom. It's a picture of power. But beneath the surface, they are in bondage. They are still in chains. Now, how do we see the reality of their bondage? Ed Welch, in his book, When People Are Big and God is Small, he writes about the fear of man. He says, the fear of man goes by other names. In our teens, we call it peer pressure. When we're older, we call it people-pleasing. With these labels in mind, we can spot the fear of man everywhere. Are you jealous of other people? Do other people often make you angry and depressed? Are they making you crazy? If so, they are probably the controlling center of your life. Doesn't include you yet? If not, consider this one word, evangelism. Have you ever been too timid to share your faith in Christ because others might call you an irrational fool? He says, gotcha. The fear of man is such a part of our human fabric that we should check for a pulse if someone denies it. Now, Proverbs 29 says, the fear of man lays a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord is safe. What's a snare? A snare is a trap that's used to catch animals. A snare is imprisoning, it restricts, it confines, it stops movement and freedom. And what the author of Proverbs is saying is the fear of man, it's a prison. It will lock you in and lock you down. Now, what does all of this have to do with our passage? Did you notice how the religious leaders responded to the name of Jesus, the fame of Jesus, how they responded to people in our passage. Look at verse 17. The miracles were performed. Christianity is growing. But the high priest rose up and all who were with him, and they were filled with jealousy. Jealousy. Look at verse 33. When they heard more teaching, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. Look at verse 28 and 29. We charge you not to teach in the name of Jesus, yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching. Back in chapter 4, verse 21, let, the, let them go. There is no way to punish them because of the people. 
Look at verse 26. The captain with the officers went and brought them, but not by force, for they were afraid of being stoned by the people. That what you start to see is that these religious leaders, that, that, that the fear of man is upon them, that they want to be popular. They want to be at the epicenter of, of Christianity. Well, not Christianity. They want to be praised. They want to be famous. They're scared of Jesus' name growing and increasing. That's bondage, says Proverbs. They're also in bondage to the fear of death. Look at verse 26 again. Then the captain with the officers went and brought them, but not by force, for they were afraid of being stoned by the people. So not only do they fear man, but they actually fear death. They're not about that life. Now, this makes perfect sense. Because the Sadducees are the dominant players here. And what do we know about the Sadducees? Back in Luke chapter 20, Luke tells us the Sadducees teach that there is no resurrection. Whoa. This is the second time we've seen them having their hands all over what's happening. They were the party of the high priests, aristocratic families and merchants, the wealthier strata of the population. The Sadducees refused to go beyond the first five books of the Bible. They, unlike the Pharisees, they denied the immortality of the soul. They denied the bodily resurrection after death, and they denied the existence of angelic spirits. If that is true... If you don't embrace the resurrection from the dead, then this life is it. And if this life is it, then the MO of the Sadducees who, or those who embrace this teaching is to have your best life now and to preserve your life at all cost. I think that's what's behind the statement in verse 28. He says, we, we strictly charge you not to teach lest you bring this man's blood upon us. My translation, stop preaching before your preaching gets us killed. And we're Sadducees and we're not ready to die. Now, why don't they want the blood of Jesus on them? What, the, what do they mean? In their book, in the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Numbers, Leviticus, Deuteronomy. In Numbers, if, a murder, if someone is murdered with a wooden tool and he dies, he is a murderer. The murderer shall be put to death. And then, then Numbers says, if anyone kills a person, the murderer shall be put to death on the evidence of witnesses, but no person shall be put to death on the testimony of one witness. Now, notice the language in our passage, verses 30 through 32. This is Peter saying, the God of our father raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. And God has exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance and forgiveness of sins. And notice what Peter says, and we are witnesses, plural. And so is the Holy Spirit. You hear what's happening? Peter's turning the table on them. 
He says, bruh, okay, you say there is no resurrection, and in your first five books of the Bible that you adhere to, you know if you wrongly kill someone and there are multiple witnesses, then you should go back on trial and you should be killed. This is why they're angry, because Peter is turning the tables on them, and they would rather kill and get rid of Peter to protect their lives. They are not only in bondage to men. They are in bondage to the fear of dying. They're in bondage to their opposition to God. Gamaliel stands up and says, hey, don't just stop. Stop. We've seen fly by night movement leaders before. Judas, we know him. He lived for a moment, and then he died, and the movement stopped. Judas, the Galilean, he lived for a moment. The movement died, and he died, and it stopped. He says, you be careful, because you may find yourself opposing God. You see the bondage? This is a miserable way to live. I'm worried about what you think. I'm worried about staying in power. I'm worried about my name being great. I'm worried about the opinions of people, and I fear death, and I'm running from it, and I will do anything I can to not die. And on top of this, I'm rebelling against God. They're in bondage. And it's a more dangerous bondage than being in a jail cell. How does God respond to their bondage? With mercy. These men killed his son. His son was innocent. Someone should pick up stones and go stone them. And God does not. First, he sends his apostles go back to the temple and preach repentance. And go again to the temple and preach repentance. And go again to the temple and preach repentance. All of this is taking place at the portico of Solomon. We saw it in 311. You see it in 512. And when the angel releases them in 520, he tells them to go back to the temple and you keep preaching. God even raises up Gamaliel, someone in their room, to try to bring them to their senses. This is mercy. Jesus died so that he might give repentance and forgiveness to sins of Israel, including the very Jewish leaders involved in the events that led to his execution. This is God, y'all, being merciful to those in a dangerous bondage. But the second thing I want us to look in this passage is divine freedom that makes or transforms the apostles into fearless servants. Divine freedom that transformed them into fearless servants. It's obvious in our passage that they are arrested. Prison shows up over and over and over and over again. And this is the second time, back in chapter 4, verse 3, that, that, that we're told that they were put into custody. 
There's a different word here. This, the word here is, is, is a city jail, right? So at first, they were probably put in a holding room out, out, out around the temple, and now they are in public prison. They are increasing the pressure, increasing humiliation. But little did the religious leaders know that if God just opened the gates of death, and brought his son back to life? Do you really think metal prison bars can hold God's servants? And so the Lord deployed an angel, the angel of the Lord, to open the prison doors, and he brought them out. And so the Sadducees say that there is no resurrection. Jesus is alive. The Sadducees say that there are no such thing as angels. God says, okay, I'm going to send you one. And they were freed. And this was a divine, miraculous encounter. But did you notice in our text that nowhere does the question come up, how were you freed? Did you catch? It's not, it's not talked about. I, mean, I'm, 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 I think that that's an important thing. That if I lock someone up and I put guards at the gate to make sure that they're in, and the next morning I go back to the guards and the guards are like, man, they were here, that, 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 that there will be some conversation. But it, it, it reads as if Luke omits that. I think one of the reasons is the emphasis isn't necessarily on the miracle to worship the miracle. The question that we should be asking is what did they do when they were freed? That's the focus. What did they do when they were freed? They went and preached and taught and opened their mouths and continued speaking the words of life. Their physical freedom was not just to make their life more accommodating. God freed them to use this beautiful freedom to exercise a deeper freedom. They were freed to free others. And they were free from the fear of man and even death itself. Did you notice what happens when the showdown occurs? That the religious leaders come and say, we charge you not to teach, yet you have filled, the image is a cup overflowing, you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching. And what was Peter's reply to him, to them? We must obey God rather than men. That is the opposite of how they're acting. The religious leaders are trying to appease the people. And here is what Peter is saying, you aren't bigger than God. That is fearless living. And they're free from the fear of death. That when they were summoned, that they wanted to kill them, enraged to kill them, and Gamaliel intervenes, and he says, don't kill them because you might be opposing God. But in verse 40, they were not content with leaving well enough alone. They just had to do something. And so it says they beat them and charged them again not to speak in the name. And this beating, one scholar says it's only mentioned three times in Acts, that this is a flogging. 
it's probably 40 lashes minus one on their backs and chest. It would leave them close to death. They hope that by intensifying the punishment, a deterrent will be established. And here's the irony. They left the presence of the council rejoicing that they almost died. You you hear this? They're not afraid of these leaders. They're not afraid of dying for the name. That's beautiful living. And that is how we respond. That's how they're responding to this beautiful freedom God has given them. Where did this come from? Think about what they have seen in their lives. They have seen the suffering of Jesus. They have seen him be buried. They have seen him stay in the ground. They have seen him raised. They have heard his voice as he lingered around. They have watched the Lord Almighty take the breath of Ananias and Sapphira. They know that life and death is not in the hand of men, but it's in the power of the Lord. And they know that even if the Lord chooses to allow them to be killed, they will be raised up because Jesus is their leader. And so has Jesus gone out. They're coming out behind him that they know that they have the commendation of God upon them, that God looks at them. I am pleased with you. And so it turns down the voices of men. They know that death has lost its sting because they have seen it in Jesus. And so it turns down the fear of death. And they're free. They're free to steward their freedom by speaking and preaching the name. That's beautiful. Now, here's the question that was true for them back then that those in a dangerous prison, God met with mercy that those who had been divinely freed, and not just freedom from the bars, but freed from their sins, free to love and serve the Lord, that the Lord enabled them and empowered them to live as fearless servants. That was cool like back then, right? Here's the question this morning. What does that mean now? What does it mean now? For those of us in this room, it means that if you are still in a dangerous prison, there is divine mercy for you now. And it means that if you have been freed from your sins, there is divine enabling now to help you become fearless servants. That if you fear people and what they think of you, that if you can't stand to see others thrive, that if you are overly worried about your ego, If you are afraid 
of death, and I don't mean a, a reverence for it, but if you are paralyzed, if you hate the name of Jesus, if it doesn't bring you joy to talk about him, let those things point you to your sickness. You might have freedom to drive and to work and to breathe, but you're in bondage. And there's one person who can free you. When an animal is caught in a snare, it needs someone outside of itself to rescue. We love to watch animal shows, and if you just watch them and they'll talk about all the plastic that we throw in the ocean and all the way that we're trashing the earth. And every now and again, you'll see animals with plastic around their neck. It's cutting off their circulation. And the more they try to free themselves, the tighter it gets. And what they need is someone on the outside to stoop down and to pick them up and to cut the snare that they might be free. That's true for us. If we're in bondage, you can't work yourself out of it. You need someone to stoop down and to cut the cords and to make you free. And his name is Jesus. His blood will wash you and cleanse you and make you new. And there is nothing you have done, will do, that makes you unredeemable. He is a God of lavish grace and abundant mercy. He's going time and time and time again to the killers of his son. And that's a picture of his mercy for you. What about those of us who have been freed? That we have been freed from spiritual bondage. How do we exercise this freedom? I think it starts with remembering God's word. Peter, the same Peter in this passage, writes later, he says, live as people who are free, not using your freedom for evil, but living as servants of God. Hear what Peter is saying? The right way to respond to the freedom we have is in service to the one who freed us. You're free to serve people, 1 Peter 2, 9, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his light. You see the so that. So how do we respond to the freedom we have? We proclaim. We use words to speak of the excellencies of Jesus. 
who talk about him at work, with our children, with friends, on the phone, that we love his name, we love his person, we love his work, we love his character, we love his essence, we love him, and so we proclaim his excellencies. And it may come with a cost. It may come with persecution. But you have the, the Father's approval. And it may come with death. And Christ has overcome the grave. Holy Spirit empowers and enables us to live as fearless servants. I'll close with this. Rich Velatus in his book, The Deeply Formed Life, he talks about growing up in East uh, New York, and the area where he grew up in was, was very, one, poor, but also very cross-cultural. And so he's of Puerto Rican descent, but he lived near Dominicans and other Puerto Ricans and Jamaicans, and Asians and African Americans. And in the book, he, he writes about this tension between ethnic groups. And he says, one of the most consistent places of conflict was the Chinese takeout restaurants and the local Korean-owned dry cleaners. He says, I remember going in, into the cleaners and there was a massive bulletproof partition that separated dry cleaning employees from the customers. There was a pervading fear of being robbed or shot. He says one day he went in and he noticed something different, that the massive bulletproof partition had been torn down. And he says he went in and he says he turned around and almost went out to, to make sure that he was in the right place and, and he was in the right place. And so the, the, the new owner bought the business the new owner took the partition down. And with a heavy accent, he says, we want to build trust with our neighbors. He says, for the first time, he was able to shake hands with someone in that place. And he later found out that the new Korean owners were Christians. Christians who talked about Jesus and weren't afraid of the threat of death. He goes on the right. They spoke of Christ. They were willing to risk for him. They were forming a new community not based on suspicion or fear, but trust. You only tear down massive bulletproof partitions when you believe that you're truly bulletproof. Jesus conquered the death and the grave. We need not fear man. We need not be like the Sadducees searching for the longest, best life now. He has an eternity prepared for you, Christian. And every day will be better than the previous day. May God make us 
fearless, faithful servants speaking of his goodness right here and right now. Let's pray. Father, we bless your name and we pray for your spirit who is given to those who obey you, who is powerfully at work in the hearts of those you have redeemed. Form us after the image of your apostles who have been formed after the image of Christ. Forgive us of our sins and the ways in which we do not steward our freedom well. Father, transform us. Make us those who do good gossiping. For the words in the name of Jesus drip from our mouths continuously. I pray this for your glory and your honor. Amen.